1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is New York Times contributor and author of a terrific book on where the Republican Party lost its mind, uh, Robert Draper. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to @politicon for next week's show. And we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Blinkist, and Miracle Brand in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, America voted on Tuesday. And while there's still some important votes out, uh, we can say it was certainly a better night than Democrats expected. The Republicans' wave that they talked about crashed. Now there was some bad news for Democrats. They lost the House almost certainly, and they'll have the Republicans have a probably a 10 or 12 seat margin. Nothing like the 30 or 40 seat gain they they expected. Uh, and uh, you know the battleground states of Ohio and Florida. I think we can say no longer look like battleground states. But there was a lot more good news. Uh, the sweep, Democratic sweep in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, those were really big. All the hype that Republicans had about a close New York gubernatorial race, it didn't happen. Uh, Kathy Hochul won decisively. But I'll tell you something else. Pro-choice was a uh, woman's right to choose, was a huge winner yesterday. California and Vermont expectedly passed the pro-choice uh, referendum. The big contest was in Michigan, where it passed easily. But maybe just as important, anti-abortion referendums lost in Montana and Kentucky. And I think finally I would say that Trump had a bad night. Uh, his hand-picked candidates in Pennsylvania and Arizona and New Hampshire went down. Uh, he certainly is his good and candidates in Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, and I, I think uh, it, it does show once again, if you have lousy candidates, nothing's gonna help him. But he certainly didn't help him. And what's gonna drive him crazy, which is always fun to watch, is all the attention Ron DeSantis has gotten. He's already threatened to dig up dirt on DeSantis and his wife if he runs, channeling Ted Cruz. And you know, finally, I think it's highly, well, I think it's likely the Democrats will control the Senate. They have 49 seats now. Georgia probably is going to a runoff with Warnock starting with a little bit of an advantage from Tuesday. And Nevada, the Republicans are ahead, but you're hearing that that may not only close, but Democrats actually could win that race.
2: John Ralston says that. So John Ralston, as I say, when John Ralston tells me it's east, I dye my eggs. I don't. I don't need anything more. But I'm waiting on text from Massachusetts campaign manager, hopefully I'll get one during the show. Uh, and uh, you know, Wisconsin is probably not going to work, but it's not definitive. There's you mean still Senate stuff f- out. Yeah. Yes, the Senate race, the yes. governor's race, hey, some stuff. Uh, I, I, I think that. Well, you say this is a 50-50 election. The enormity of this is staggering. By any historical reference point or standard, it should have been a wipeout. And the reason it wasn't a wipeout was frankly Trump. All right, right, that, that's what... This turnout, I, I can't wait for the catalyst analysis and Ron Brownstein to come on the show and uh, talk about the turnout, who showed up. But, but it's clear we had a higher, younger turnout than... And anybody thought we'd have, and probably had a higher female turnout than anybody thought we'd, we'd have. And I, I mean, that, that's to be dissected. But by any standard, this thing should have been a blowout. And it was not. It was not.
1: Without question, I, I, I think, I, I'm not sure you've had a first term, uh, midterm midterm election, a president's first term of the party in power that went any better. I think you probably have to go back to Jack Kennedy in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, I think Bush had an okay 2002. Pardon me? Bush had an okay. Uh, Bush two. had, yeah, a, yeah bad. i bad. I, you know, I still think he, anyway. But um, look, I'm, there were disappointments. Uh, I mentioned uh, Ohio earlier. Tim Ryan ran a great race, uh, gave, I'm told, a, just a beautiful concession speech, but it just was impossible. And my biggest disappointment, as you know, was North Carolina, where Sherry Beasley yeah. was a good candidate, would have been a great senator, and lost to kind of a second-rate gun store owner and right-wing congressman. Uh, But McConnell and the Club for Growth poured tons of money into North Carolina. I have a personal reason. My son worked for me. He told me this morning he's never been prouder. So that was a disappointment. The other disappointment down the road—and I'm going to get to the good stuff in a minute—state Supreme Court races. Not enough attention was paid to them, and Democrats lost control in North Carolina and lost in Ohio, both of which will affect voting rights, and gerrymandering in the future. I wish Democrats had paid more attention to that. Having talked about the down moments, there were so many more good moments. You look at some of the candidates that won. Uh, uh, What's her name? Uh, uh, Lauren Bobbert was defeated, James. I know that's going to upset you because you had so many great stories about how she met her husband. But she was defeated out there in a heavily Republican district. The only person in the country who I who thought that was going to happen was Juliana Goldberg of uh, of uh, Bloomberg. She was out in Aspen City Is was going to win. That was a big deal. Ohio, the Democrats won three House seats in Ohio, all of which were either toss-ups or leaning R, and the same thing in Pennsylvania. So the Democratic base did quite well yesterday. And uh, frankly, looking ahead, and there's so many uncertainties, looking ahead, i feel better about the night if
2: I were a Democrat, than if I were a Republican. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I think that, from my view, the candidate of the cycle, and we'll give it to Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. I mean, he in in he actually got involved, made sure that Mastriano won the Republican primary, much to the chagrin of a lot of a lot of people. Don't know. And then he took the crime stuff, he ran right with it. He took the inflation stuff, he ran right with it. And he won by enough that he got Fetterman across the finish line. I think he was instrumental in Fetterman winning that Senate seat. The the candidate on the Republican side that people are forgetting about because they're obsessed with DeSantis, I'll tell you another Republican politician had a big night, Brian Kemp. And there are a lot of... Mainstream Republicans that don't like DeSantis, all right, and that love Brian Kemp. That's a name you're going to be hearing a lot more coming into 2024.
1: Yeah, probably more of a hope than a reality. I think another – listen, going to your point, there were a number of contests where in the primaries, Democrats uh, in one way or another helped the uh, least elected Republican. Michigan. Republican. It not only was Pennsylvania where they did it, they did it in New Hampshire, they did it in Maryland, they did it in that congressional race uh, out in Western Michigan. Every one of those races, the Democrats won. And I don't think it would have been a certainty. I think it probably would have been unlikely in, in three of those four.
2: So- uh, It so, worked. Yeah, okay. it absolutely worked. It worked. And, and, and for all of the chagrin that they, they were trying to do everything they could to win the election, and you, you never know if these things are going to work, but it worked. And all of the angst and the pan ringing and, oh, my God, and democracy, it, it, um, I was delighted and relieved that it worked.
1: Well, I, I tell you who else had a good night. Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney endorsed Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. She won. Endorsed Abigail Spamberger in Virginia. She won. said, don't vote for that ticket in Arizona, it appears— not certain in the governor's race yet, but it appears they may all have lost. So uh, that'll drive
2: Trump almost as crazy as Ron sanctimonious Well, you know, it's still some chance that she's going to be Speaker of the House. I'll maintain that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we'll yeah. get into to that in the politics of the Republican Party with Robert Draper, uh, because there is a, a lot to get into. I'll tell you another guy who is going to be a, be a star of sorts who emerged last night is Wes Moore uh, in Maryland. Uh, he had a he had a lousy opponent. And it was an easy win in a in a, in a blue state. But uh, he is a very attractive guy. And I think you're going to hear a lot from Wes Moore.
2: He, he, he was so far ahead, he could have Biden come in the state for him.
1: <laughs> well, I, look, I'm very happy for the White House last night. I am, too. They have, I, 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 it I, humiliation I, and all. But let's. Yeah, we I, I mean, you know, Joe Biden spent the last couple of days in. Other than, I guess he was in Pennsylvania, but in Maryland, and in Mexico, and California, um, he uh, he wasn't a factor, which was good for Democrats. Yeah, the, the,
2: the Trump was the big factor in all of this, and he lost. I I mean, it it it, it, it was staggering that the Democrats did as well as they did. Just breathtaking. And I think that high turnout is now a feature. We talk about democracy being in trouble, and I understand that, and it is. But if the health of democracy is measured by the number of people voting, shit, (laughs) we're rolling. Let me tell you, because you may
1: not understand, because Donald Trump explained, the reason those candidates lost, that he had endorsed, because they pulled back from the big lie. If they had continued with the big lie, Donald Trump told us uh, this morning, uh, they all would have won. Absolutely, sure. And if I had wings, I could fly. Uh, he, he is, uh, he's going to get meaner, he's going to get nastier. Uh, and I, I, what worries Republicans, however, in a Republican primary, he's still a factor. He was able to pick those guys, and he won a couple. He won North Carolina and he won Ohio. And um, you know, he, he um, I, I think he's a real problem for the party. But I'll tell you this much, I don't think you're going to find House Republicans standing up to Donald Trump.
2: Well, I, you know, it's an issue. He's going to be indicted, all right? Would you? Everyone knows that. No one wants to say it. Let me repeat. He's going to be indicted, and you're going to understand the indictment. It's going to be very clean and very clean. Maybe may be indicted twice for all I know, but it, it's, it's a matter of time and not a very long time before he's indicted.
1: Well, I, I agree. He's going to be indicted. However, I'm not sure uh, what kind of an impact that's going to have. I'm not sure sh- it won't be a Netanyahu-type impact. Certainly, uh, you couldn't be clearer than the January 6th committee. That was probably the best congressional hearing I have ever seen. It was absolutely clear-cut. And unfortunately, it hasn't made much of a difference in the country. Uh, and one of the members, two of the members of that committee lost, lost this year in elections. So I'm not sure that the indictment, as much as it should, is going to hurt Trump. Uh,
2: well, for, for, for Elaine Laurier got a bad redistricting draw. If she would have had the same district she want, ran in originally, she would have probably won. It have been very... And I, I don't say that it, it didn't affect... The, the Democrats performed seven points better than they should have. I mean, we should have been slaughtered. Something had an effect somewhere. I, 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 you, you know, where you, where you have 8% inflation of... Forty percent presidential approval, a seventy-five wrong track, and you basically tie an election. Something has something affecting something out there. I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, as we get more analysis, it'll get deeper. But they had a they, they had a bad night. This is like uh, I don't know, East Carolina beating Ohio, tying Ohio State.
1: Well. They did have a bad night, and all those factors you cited were in play. The other thing is in play in a lot of places, Democrats had better candidates and Republicans had bad. Choice. It wasn't just the high visibility of Senate races we talked about, but it was House races. Uh, over in, in, in the western part of Michigan, uh, where the Democrats won, in Ohio, they, the, the Republican legislature had absolutely gerrymandered Marcy Kaptur out of a seat. They turned a seat that had, I don't know, a seven, eight point Democratic advantage and the one that had at least an eight or 10 point Republican advantage. But she was a veteran and she happened to have the good, good fortune to run against a nutbag. And They are a liar too. Right, absolute liar. So I think candidates, you know, sometimes people say candidates don't matter, it's all about the environment, it's all about conditions. Well, sure, the conditions make a big difference, but boy, candidates do too. And, and the Republican party put up some really bad reviews
2: yeah i go back to josh shapiro he's my poster ball for how to run a, a mean tough campaign
1: well i hope you're right
2: about wisconsin i don't, I, 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 yeah, I I don't wisconsin. know i i i i think i don't know all i'm saying is that there's still votes coming in they generally the late vote is heavily democratic i don't know he's still pretty far behind i'm Great no, um
1: I will say this, I think this was—this was, uh, this, this should teach the left a lesson, I doubt it will, uh, because I think either of the other two major Democratic candidates would have beaten Ron Johnson, who had a—he he was off the charts uh, in negatives in the state. The papers were saying he was an embarrassment, which he is. Uh, I think there's an Oregon House race, too, where the left uh, defeated an incumbent Democrat that may turn the district over to a Republican. So you
2: would hope they would learn something.
1: Uh, I rather doubt they will.
2: You know, people just can't stand them, and they keep saying, and you know, they they pretty much shell back into a few places in the country. Uh, they do enormous damage to the party brand. Uh, you, you still, we had, you know, our messaging was not that great. I mean, the reason that we did so well is because people just were. Repulsed by Trump and Dobbs and rioting and everything else, but I, 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 I you know, I think that the Democratic Party, you know, I, I hope people can sit down with, with the left and figure a way to how they can fit into our coalition without doing so much damage.
1: Yeah, uh, I do too. I would say a final note: last night was the first time that I had not covered or directed coverage uh, of a. Of a midterm election, so I watched it all night with a group of friends, and they had on a set with four different, uh, four different um, uh, networks. And I know what my I, my dream of an election night coverage would be. I want to have three sets on, and I want to have Judy Woodruff, my wife, because that who anchors that news hour with such distinction, and then I want to have Steve Kornacki on. But I don't want to hear any of the other MSNBC types. And then when we go to CNN, I want to hear David Axelrod's insights uh, and uh, not the rest of the panel. Man, I'll tell you, that's where I learned last night uh, from Axelrod and Woodruff, which was expected. Kornacki is the best thing since Tim Russert.
2: It's great. And, and, you know, he's a horse degenerate. That's what I like about him. Well, I think that's fine. But I think his politics yeah, is well, I mean, I more now, relevant. If, 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 you know, let me tell you, I've, I've tried picking race horses. It's, it's hard. Trust me. But he, 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 he went to Astor. He goes to all the big horse races. Well, what he, he did last night that
1: was so smart, he went to each county or each district or each state, wherever it was, and he compared the votes that the Democrat and Republican candidates were getting Versus what Trump and Biden got there, because that's what what mattered. Whether you were, you know, with early voting, uh, and may, you don't know what's coming in late, but well, you do have a sense when
2: you compare to how it was two years ago. It was a you made a great it, contribution. It, the, the one observation you make that I agree with, and I, I do and did a lot of cable TV in my life, is everybody's political opinion is not equal. All right, Kernacki knows more about. You Know he has more data in front of him, he's got more everything. The, the 80% of the other people yapping, that's just they don't know this. They might know cultural things, they might know this side. And you know, the same thing with CNN. I mean, David's opinion, or Paul Bugallo's opinion of me, are much more learned than most of the other people on there because that's what they did with their lives. And I, I think your point. Is well taken, but you know they do these panels, and they gotta have up you know every kind of balance that you can have. The, the, the one thing, the balance they don't worry about is anybody knows what the shit they're talking about.
1: Yeah, and that's you're right about Cornacki, and he was so good. And then they go back to the MSNBC panel, it was all a bunch of. Democrats, liberal Democrats, talking about how bad the Republicans were. I don't need to be told what I think on election night. I want to be told what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, that I, I already know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I already know I think, what I
2: think. I couldn't wait
1: for Kornacki to get back on.
2: Right, right. I, I I watched it on my computer. You know, it was bizarre, Anyway, so. a big,
1: um, you know, a good night. I I will just say in closing that I think that uh, that the. Uh, the biggest loss next year is going to be Nancy Pelosi, who's going to leave the House. She will leave the House, I think, is perhaps the greatest speaker uh, in the history of the Congress. And um, she went out with the same distinction uh, and that she's always enjoyed, and she will be missed.
2: Well, you have no idea, because there's nothing that enhances your reputation then you're the person that comes after you being about the worst speaker in history and that's almost guaranteed. If Kevin McCarthy is a speaker. Yeah. I'm not I'm not totally convinced
1: that You're gonna get into that James with Robert Draper. I think you're right. Hey, James, this Republican Party about to assume control of the House is not your grandmother's political party. This is captured in a brilliantly reported new book by Robert Draper, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert, you began reporting this book on January 6th. Trump's was in disgrace then. Uh, It was to be a contest, as you put it, between the reality-based wing versus the lost-its-mind Republicans. The mindless faction won, and Trump hasn't gone away.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, the, Al, the, the thought would have been at that moment, among most reasonable minds, would be that the Republican Party would recoil in horror from what had taken place on January the 6th, taken stock of its responsibility for it, and endeavored to purge those corrosive elements in the Republican Party, that had given rise to um, the insurrection on January the 6th. That's not what happened, as we all know. They instead doubled and tripled down, and now um, uh, the courting of the MAGA base, the coddling of that base, um, which includes, of course, um, uh, kissing up not only to Trump, but to his proximate warriors on the Hill, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, has led the Republican Party to the place where it is now. Well, now they
1: have to at least semi-govern. Kevin McCarthy, Likely to be the new speaker. James says it's not a certainty. He's right. But, you know, knowing Kevin McCarthy, he'll do whatever he has to to get there. He's not a man of strong convictions. Uh, even with a, you know, I, I think he's going to probably have, you know, no more than a seven or eight seat uh, uh, margin there. Uh, there'll be endless investigations and much. But McCarthy's dream to be the speaker could well turn into a nightmare with that caucus, couldn't it?
3: Absolutely, I mean, there is a a parable that I I recount in my book, Al, um, from the TV series, The Wire, um, in which a mayor of Baltimore describes how the job of being mayor involves basically eating one bowl of human shit after another from this or that constituency group. And Patrick McHenry, one of the leading establishment Republicans in the House, um, sent over a clip of that to Kevin McCarthy by way of warning him, um, if this is the job you really want, this is what it's going to entail. And I do think that's the case. I mean, now with what's likely to be a narrow majority, if indeed he pulls out a majority at all, uh, he is going to be having to cater to the MAGA constituency. Otherwise, they will make hell for him. Marjorie Taylor Greene has made it abundantly clear to me that, that uh, she intends to have maximum leverage. And it will extend well beyond just getting plum committee assignments.
1: Well, you spent more time with Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, than any other mainstream reporter. Uh, so let's talk about her. Uh, she was the, you know, the one-time QAnon spout, uh, spouting uh, who, who uh, actually, Kevin McCarthy, I don't think it was your book, I think it was uh, Lebo's book. Uh, he used to call her batshit crazy, but uh, he's going to have to cater. Now, you spent a lot of time with her. You, I think you wrote, she's not dumb, uh, but but she really is um, uh, she's um, is 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 going to be crazy. She's going to do things that are going to drive McCarthy crazy.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, her her viewpoints are pretty damn extreme. I mean, they're well outside of even re- Republican mainstream thought, though she has succeeded in messaging her way into the core of, of the GOP. What she has said to me is that, uh, I mean, she, she you know, people ask me all the time, Al, is this person, first, is she dumb? And secondly, um, does she believe all this stuff? And thirdly, um, is she just a performance artist? Uh, and no, she's not dumb. Yes, she believes enough of this stuff, though she certainly hyperbolizes it for Effect, and um, uh, and you know she intends to she intends to make good on all this. It's why she ran in 2019 because she was disappointed that Republicans hadn't enacted Trump's agenda. Uh, the problem, though, you know, if um, the Republicans do take power, Al is is um, that. Um, simple measures like um, funding the war in Ukraine, for example, are now very, very much up in the air. Um, whether or not to raise the debt ceiling is also up in the air. The spectacle of um, successive continuing resolutions to keep the government open is up in the air. So those, those are the obvious things, in addition to the fact that you can expect to see retribution against Democrats who stripped uh, Green and Paul Gosar of their committee assignments, and you can expect as well to see impeachment initiatives is um, uh, brought to the House floor too. So that's uh, so that's what a Marjorie Taylor Greene majority is likely to look like,
1: because she's going to have a bunch of uh, a bunch of followers or green uh, mini greens. There, it's not just her. James Carville.
2: So, Robert, uh, there are kind of competing views here, and I want you to weigh in on this. One view is is that Trump, you know, offered people out there a certain thing he became a cult figure and he it's the sort of innovative trumpism and if we get rid of trump everything will go away there's another view out there that i think was expressed by kathy barnett the, the right-wing senate candidate in pennsylvania who said you got to understand MAGA was there before trump MAGA will be here after Trump and the only reason that we like Trump is he tells us what we already want to hear. And uses a specific example when he told people to get vaccinated in North Alabama, they boot him off the stage. So absent unless listen, Trump gets an I don't know, he goes away. It, does that cure the Republicans' problem or do they still have a MAGA Trumpism problem of the
3: yeah, I think I think you've probably answered your own question, James. I mean, I think that that uh, the second scenario is likelier to be true. It's true that that um, that Trump exploited these populist grievances that predated him, um, and it's true that there is no one who has done it as effectively as him. But he's shown the Republican Party a, a new way, a different way than simply. Um, the very hard path of trying to persuade people who don't like you to like you, to broaden your tent, in other words, and instead persuade people who like you to love you and demagogue against the rest and then if all else fails, um, claim that you were cheated out of victory. Uh, so, I, yeah, I certainly think that Trumpism will outlast Trump. And uh, uh, because, you know, and, and, and by the way, it's— you know, the the thing that I'm most concerned with that will outlast Trump is that we now have tens of millions of Americans who believe the 2020 election was stolen? Who believe the Democrats cheat to win whenever they do win? Who believe that January the sixth was take your pick either um, you know a, a peaceful endeavor or an anti uh, uh, uh show of violence or a setup by the FBI? And who believe that COVID vaccines are killers? Uh, those you know that is an element of Trumpism too. The spread of disinformation that is not going to go away just when Trump lumbers off stage.
2: So Robert, I, I've been knowing you for a long time. I, th- I think you got a guy from suburban Houston, and I never, I never viewed you very, as very ideological. Uh, I think you wrote books on Bush administration that were, you know, were, were certainly not hit pieces or anything. And you seem to be, you know, pretty sort of down the middle suburban Houston reporter. And then you. You know, said, wait a minute, this is – what What was your tipping point? When did you say, I, I, I need to investigate this. this. This shit ain't normal.
3: Well, I think it was when um, the Republican Party became unhinged from reality, James. I mean, I think that, that when it became clear that the party for um, was not pursuing ideology but instead was pursuing um, a kind of personality cult – that would result in it um, uh, being untethered to facts in the, uh, in the fealty uh, towards uh, that particular personality, Trump. That's what I begin mean, to realize you know that, that you, you have to call out lies for what they are. you have to call out delusions for what they are, and you have to recognize it when um, one of the two parties that is instrumental to a functioning um, two party system democracy, becomes unhinged from reality. You have to call that stuff out. And so that's what this book does.
2: So uh, before I turn it over to Al, what are like a couple of three things that people, when they buy your book called Weapons of Mass Delusion by Robert Draper, give us a couple of three things that they're going to find in there that, that are going to shock them, right? that shocked you when you found them out. He says, I mean, that's just some crazy shit, but man, this is over the top. Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. James, I think, you know, I, I came into this expecting to, um, you know, expecting a lot of the weapons side of the equation, that is to say, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, um, those people have been out there and their extreme views have been known. Um, what I did not expect to encounter was the depth of delusion en masse, which is to say to go into Republican areas and uh, not just Trump rallies uh, and not just um, uh, Republican campaign events, but basically grassroots, run-of-the-mill Republican uh, activities, and to see people who were utterly in the sway of disinformation, who operated in a kind of parallel reality in which... um, uh, you know, people like me from The New York Times really are viewed as enemies of the American people. But but more than that, who instead view as their reliable information sources, things that, you know, a decade ago didn't exist, like Gateway Pundit and Newsmax. And if you go to a Trump rally now, James, what you see on the media riser isn't CNN and NBC and ABC. What you see are right-side broadcasting um, Real America's Voice, One America Network, propaganda outlets for Trump that have become the reliable information sources for these people. And so they are in an ecosystem they simply can't get out of, where they are surrounded by untruth. The, the, the degree and the depth of that, the intensity of that, was something I just didn't expect to encounter. But, but everywhere I went, I did indeed confront.
1: I I think to go to James's question, uh, Robert, I think almost every page something's going to pop out of people. Another fringe figure you write about uh, in some depth is Arizona's Paul Gosar and his chief of staff. He's so loony that most of his family came out against him. But what gets me, he traffics with white nationalists, as you know. Four years ago, the Republicans ostracized Steve King for trafficking with those kind of hate groups. But not today. They don't do anything to Gosar Day because, Robert, that's part of their base now.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, Al, I I included Paul Gosar in my book for – Two or three reasons. I mean, one was that he actually did—he was kind of the Mrs. O'Leary's cow that that, uh, started the whole Stop the Steal thing in Arizona and objected to certifying Arizona on January the 6th. Um, Also, he's a a Tea Party congressman. He came in on the 2010 wave. And so I was interested in seeing— as I have been since I wrote about that class in 2012, um, how they have sort of been, um, how they've seeped into the bloodstream. And and Gosar is interesting, not because he's terribly influential as a standalone figure, but because how the Republican Party, just as you described it, Al, has come to just... Accept him and not um, not try to punish him in any way because they're afraid of not so much him but what but the MAGA movement that he represents. So you mentioned that he he you know attended this white nationalist rally um, uh, headed by Nicholas Fuentes and uh, McCarthy didn't so much as say anything to him about it when he was going to do a fundraiser with Fuentes and ultimately kicked the plug out on it. McCarthy just asked him, "Hey, is it true you're going to do a fundraiser?" And Gosar said, "No," and. Gave him a high five, and that was it. And so, this um, what what the Republican leadership has come to understand is that uh, that if you try to punish these guys, you turn them into folk heroes in the far right movement. And so, McCarthy's response then has not only been not even to try, but to defend them. And indeed, when Gosar was uh, stripped from his committee assignments by the Democrats. McCarthy then went to Gosar and not only promised him that in a Republican majority, he'd get his committee assignments back, but that he would get, quote, better assignments. So far from being you know disciplined for his misconduct, he's being rewarded for it.
1: Be, you know, this crazy caucus, let's call it that. Uh, they lost one of their members apparently uh, on Tuesday. It looks like Lauren Boebert uh, lost, which is uh, uh, was a, was a surprise, but a uh, a well earned defeat. But how big is this Green Ghosts are crazy caucus uh, in the House right now? Do you think? Yeah, Robert?
3: yeah. So there's a couple of things. First, on Lauren Boebert, the race isn't over yet. But it's but but this is a case of where Boebert, um, her Colorado's third congressional district is red, but not red in the way that, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Georgia, Northwest Georgia district is or Matt Gaetz's um, Florida district is. Uh, Durango is there, Aspen is there. But Boebert has kind of drunk the Kool-Aid of the MAGA movement and has become a national figure and has basically forgotten that the folks at home don't entirely cotton to all of this nonsense. Not, not, not all of them do in any event. So to, to directly answer your question, when you look at what will be the you know possibly the republican house majority it's going to be a you know a minority that are full on maga types but That's not the point. And and the point isn't even that they're the loudest, most obnoxious voices in the room. It's that they represent a MAGA movement that establishment Republicans remain terrified of to the point where, and this is documented in my book, they said over and over, look, you know, I'm not going to fight Marjorie Taylor Greene. If I do that, she's going to come after me. I'm going to get primaried to my right. I'm going to lose. And the person who comes to Washington is going to be another Marjorie Taylor Greene. no one in the party, and therefore, I'm just going to kind of um, hold my tongue. Uh, the problem then becomes, how, how do you figure that a Marjorie Taylor Greene gets flushed out of the GOP system? Uh, they're assuming that, that someone like her will go away on her own, and there's no evidence to support that assumption.
1: In the mainstream Republicans uh, dream that is not going to happen. You know, I was absorbed by so much in your book with, uh, among, as Kevin McCarthy called him one time, the batshit crazies. But I think the one that just, just drove me, I mean, it really just made me furious was when two of those Capitol Hill police officers who were injured while trying to keep the Trump mob uh, away on January 6th, and the mother of a Capitol Hill police officer who was killed came to talk to members. And some Republicans like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney were uh, treating them with great respect and gave them time. But then there were others Ron Johnson started talking about Trump. Ted Cruz stiffed them. Lindsey Graham appeared disinterested. These were the brave men who risked their lives for these politicians, and these people were so, I guess, afraid of that MAGA mob that they 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 treated them with disrespect. That's really disgusting.
3: Robin. Yeah, yeah. You know, like in the Ron jo- the the, um, the the time they had with Senator Ron Johnson, they did say that he was. He was very sort of courtly to them, but he also said, "You know, frankly, um, the you know the the Maga types—they're very, very peaceful." He was casting doubt on. Um Trump and uh, and his movement having any role in the riot that took place, where after all, I would say these Capitol police would have a pretty good idea because they're the ones who confronted them at very close range. Um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, had a, you know um, had then come to, to meet with him too, but it was clear that he was just checking boxes. He asked the cops if they like to hunt and that sort of thing. So it it is definitely a you know, it, it, and as my book mentions, you know, Al, I mean on. On January the sixth, when um, when Trump and Kevin McCarthy had their phone conversation, and Trump said to McCarthy, "Well, it seems like these people, the rioters, are more concerned about uh, the the results of the election and and you know any election fraud than you are," and McCarthy's you know um, response was concerned, concerned. They're effing trying to kill me. So this was McCarthy on the one hand recognizing the gravity of the circumstances on January the sixth. Then months later basically trying to get by with a minimum, to humor a bunch of Capitol policemen, usher them out the door, and then vote against the January 6th committee.
1: I'm going to turn it over to James, but next time there's an assault on the Capitol, let's send Ron Johnson and Kevin McCarthy out to the front lines.
2: Go ahead, James. All right, so this is a real possibility. Let's say there's a three-fourth vote Republican majority, all right? Now, I am correct on this. I think that the entire House gets to vote on the Speaker. And that it is not a requirement to be Speaker of the House that you're a member of the House. So, so Hakeem Jeffers, you know, the new Democratic leader, goes to a, a group of Republicans and say, hey, i got 212 votes. You know, you get me five, and we can run the House. And you know, are there five people that say, I, I just can't do this with Paul Gose or Marjorie Taylor Greene, this nutty stuff. You know, why don't we make Liz Cheney speaker? Is, is that is that, a, is that me just being crazy and or something, or they're gonna have a real? Problem electing a speaker with a three or four vote majority. Well,
3: I mean, that scenario has been floated all the way around, and it's a scenario that Kevin McCarthy's well aware of, too, James. In fact, it's one of the things that he's been saying to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who don't have a speaker candidate of their own and realize McCarthy has outflanked them but still want to get as much in the way of concessions as they can out of McCarthy. McCarthy's counter to that is, well, look, you know, you can. You can try to squeeze every drop of blood out of this rock that you want in terms of concessions. But the reality, Marjorie, is that, you know, if we're not careful, a Democrat will be the speaker. And is that really your goal here? So um, so the scenario that you're describing is one that I—for one thing, I think the short answer is no. I, I don't envision— there being even five republicans who would go along with the scheme that you described that Hakeem Jeffries might might float to them. Those would be five um, republicans who uh, are just asking to be primaried, you know, and to get Deliz Cheney treatment. And I should say that that is the object lesson among House Republicans now who um, would dare to speak up against Donald Trump and against the MAGA movement. They all point to Liz Cheney not as a profile in courage, but as you know, a, the, uh, the, uh, the cautionary tale for what happens. You lose your job. That's their view of it. So I, I don't see a scenario where that kind of support would eventuate.
2: Well, he's he, you know, Nancy Pelosi was masterful in her dealing with a, a very slim democratic majority. Yeah, this guy's not going to do it. I I, I I think that this thing falls apart at some at some juncture. But if it stays, and I feel if you know if that's if it stays in that really, really.
3: well, the marginal and the other thing too, James is that I mean, since you've mentioned Pelosi, you know, um it's, it's, it's worth recognizing not only what Pelosi's done with a slender majority, not only what she did while she was in the minority, but also further to what we were saying about Gosar, um, that we saw how um, she has maintained discipline within the Democratic caucus in a way that one cannot env- envision Kevin McCarthy doing. I mean, it's, um, you know, she's... Um, she made clear to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, th- by denying her seat on Energy and Commerce that um, she Pelosi was not going to be run roughshod over by the progressives, you know, in the Democratic caucus. And and uh, again, you know, the, Pelosi, for whatever else anybody, including her foremost detractors, will say about her, um, really, really, you know, keeps that caucus together. Um, is uh, is you know, is always in a position to remind people of the power that she has. And I just do not see that happening under a McCarthy-run Republican majority.
2: Right. Well, I I can't thank you enough, but, you know, you've been a dear friend for a long time. Uh, You've been very successful in your career. I think this is, you know, the most successful thing that you've ever done or maybe anybody has ever done on this really important topic. So I'm proud that you're on the show today after the election, proud to call your friend, and good luck to you. Thank you so much, James.
1: And let me just add two things. Uh, number one, picking up on that, uh, Robert, I've been in this town, as you know, for a long, 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 long time. Nancy Pelosi is without doubt the most, the best speaker and, and since I've been here, and I think maybe the best speaker in the history of the House. That's how good she's been. And secondly, I want to tell all of you out there, the Republicans are. I'm. I'm convinced they're going to take over the House. Uh, there's still some races out, and you must read "Weapons of Mass Delusion." If you want to understand this crowd, Robert Draper has done the best job of telling you what they're all about. <clears throat> it's not. Uh, you know. You may stay awake at night after you read it, but it's really a terrific
3: book. So thank you, Robert. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: In our show notes.
1: A lot of listener questions, James. Some of them came in before the election, so I'm going to have to skip them. But we have some that certainly are politics-related. James, the first question is from Jerry in Texas, and I think this is Texas-centric. Can you talk in greater detail about the reset you
2: think Democrats need? Well, I... I think the reset that they need is they need more consistent and repetitive messaging but but that's going to be hard to do you know the republicans control in the house and everything that's going to happen in 2024 is going to be determined by one thing and that is our presidential candidate so I I wasn't I didn't think our messaging was was particularly effective in 2022 but Trump's was such a domineering factor it it, it actually to use a cliche he trumped everything but i i think whatever message reset that we have is going to be largely determined by our nominating process for our presidential candidate and what happens in a general election yeah, uh, I concur. Joe
1: in Fresno, California, says Republican-funded polls touting GOP gains were published last week to bring down the Democratic averages and discourage and discourage Democratic voters. What's your take? Well, first of all, I don't think it discouraged Democratic voters, but it did happen. Uh, Outfits like Trafalgar and Insider published polls that really were out of sync, and it created the impression there were a lot of races that were either um, democrats were losing which they weren't or it was going to be really close which it wasn't so it just is a lesson i think the polls actually had a pretty good night but it's a lesson to look all polls are not equal
2: yeah i i i i agree with you i mean, no one ever wants to say the, the polls were you know the mainstream polls are more you know they were all pretty much on the mark i mean they they had the you know we didn't pay enough attention to the contraindicators, which were a massive number of people voting early, which if you think about it, let's do a little political consultant 101, older white people tend to vote at very high rates in all elections, right? So if you have a, a, a real jacked-up turnout, there's only so much more blood left in the older white, you know, post-55 white turnip, if you will. But what it tells me, and I'm waiting for Catalyst and Ron Brownstein and Wasserman and all of our friends to, to digest what, what, what really happened here, but but I think we had a, a, a jacked up turnout among uh, young people, and, and and probably some jacked up among females, but yeah, somebody yeah, no, I, yeah. came out, but the polling, in the Senate polling, and we talked all the time, they were all 48-48. Well, it all ended up Some version of forty-eight, forty-eight. Yeah, those, those, those four or five places for sure, but but and Colorado
1: was too. Uh, Jeff in Marin County, California says, I want to get involved in the person-to-person relationship building and outreach that's not being done. I guess, you know, it certainly is being done if you're a Democrat in Marin County. But anyway, he says, I'm sure in this audience I'm not alone. Where do we start? Who do we talk to? What do we do? Do I just send my resume, resume to someone seeking office? Do we reach out to a PAC?
2: You know, that is a really good question. And I've been asked that a lot. And I, I, what I tell people, you should do. You should pick a race, and you know, an important race. And it, it, it can be a U.S. Senate, a governor it can be a state supreme court race. It can be anything. And I'm, I'm assuming that that you, you not you don't want to travel and move somewhere different for three months. But you can get involved with the campaign. You can ask to do research. You can donate money to it. You can get call call lists. They can you say, give me some list of some you know democratic based voters that I can get in touch with and get them to get out and vote. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do, but the the best thing to do is to find a really important, relevant race and get try to get in touch with somebody there it doesn't necessarily have to be the campaign manager, but somebody of some. Yeah, you know, some influence in the campaign and say, "Look, put me to work. I'm sit- sitting in Marin County, and I'm I'm desperate. I, I love my country, and I want to devote, you know, three and a half hours a day to this. And that's how you can do it. And they'll yep. give you assignments. Okay. You can do all kinds of different things.
1: Brian, outside of Wilmington, North Carolina, that's a terrific city. That it really is. is. I it love is. I love Wilmington. Says our, I'm sure he's talking about Democrats. Our party is in shambles with no leadership, and it's not up to Joe. He has enough to do, and he's too old. Who will step up? Who are the young leaders no. to look to? You know, Brian, your question was much more on the mark two days ago. Uh, it was a good night, uh, Tuesday. Uh, I, I have great, I wrote this, so I don't mind saying it. I don't think Biden should run again. I think he should actually go and retire in, in, in 25 on his laurels. He had a terrific first two years. If they keep the Senate and get a whole bunch of appointments through important foreign policy, uh, and but uh, there are a lot of young, uh, a lot of younger people out there. Num- number of them won last night, like Gretchen Whitmer in uh, uh, in uh, Michigan. So so keep your eye on. Don't 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 worry yet about that.
2: I completely concur, and I can tell you I'm going to go through the litany of names, but I can think of ten people that are going to you know be terrific messages uh, for the different for the democratic party i i i think that we have a wealth of bench talent and we've got to get them off the bench and into the game
1: yeah i concur totally gerald in nashville tennessee says this is a good one james are professional political consultants really important aren't they just giving someone's opinion on how someone else should run their campaign what makes a good one
2: well, I mean, okay. I appreciate the question because there's all kinds of different political consultants. I mean, there's some people that do direct voter contact, they do TV, they do polling, they do all kinds of different things. Uh, it's like anything else. I think if you have a good one that the candidate has confidence in, it, it can play a significant role in in setting the parameters of, of the campaign. But you know it's it's a very diffuse business there's all kinds of different people in it but every candidate is going to have somebody or a group of people that they're going to rely on for for judgment for logistics to, to just get things out do things schedule i mean it's it, it's it's a pretty large undertaking and to do it better it helps a lot more than to not do it better i i you know, I guarantee you, this thing in Arizona is very upsetting, and some people think that Carrie Lake is going to eke out a win. You know, if Katie Hobbs had, in, they were telling me stories like just Saturday before the election, she was in Tucson, with University of Arizona, with 14 people. I mean, she loses that thing by 500 votes. I don't know what her campaign was, or so a campaign manager was. I don't know much about it, but but it was a colossally unimpressive thing from a, different, from a distance.
1: One of the worst interviews I saw all season. Daniel in San Juan Capistrano, California, says, can someone please explain to me how voting Republican will solve inflation in this country and around the rest of the world for that matter? Daniel, no. No one can explain to you because it won't. As a matter of fact, I think it's possible that if if the Republicans control the Senate, which I think is very unlikely now, but if they control the Senate and the House, uh, they would make it worse. I mean, they want to repeal. The cap on insulin prices. They want to repeal the uh, provision that allows Medicare to negotiate um, uh, with the drug companies. It would lower drug prices, uh, and they want to give more to an already incredibly rich oil industry. So no, uh, they'll talk about cutting spending, but um, you know they also want to cut taxes. And I would just remind them always when they say this is all due to Biden's policy. They ought to answer why inflation is even worse in Germany and in Great Britain.
2: Well, so the proposal we do know from the mouth of Kevin McCarthy and the mouth of Rick Scott and, 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 you know, traditionally at the heart of the revolving thing is they say they are going to shut the government down, and I think of what what that's going to do for you, in order to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. So you think that a, a, a... elderly person on a fixed income that has social security that needs a cola or they need a cut you think they, the children of that person uh, the same thing with medicare uh, it, it, we should just be a one little one trick pony it would devastate tens of millions of people and maybe hundreds of millions of families in the united states if you did something mm-hmm. like that next deborah in
1: fair play maryland i know a lot about maryland i don't know fair play she okay. says i plan to engage with the washington county democratic committee that must be you know one of the red uh, counties in uh, in the state uh, because i was appalled at how few local races even had a democratic candidate running how do we get the state democratic apparatus working more aggressively with every democratic county in every state to develop credible democratic candidates P.S. How am I going to get by without seeing Judy on the on the PBS NewsHour? I will I will answer that one first, then turn it over to you, James. Judy is going to continue on the PBS NewsHour for quite a while, so please stay tuned. Go ahead, James.
2: Yeah, I, you know, well, you got a new energetic governor there, and uh, hopefully, and let's see, but keep your eye on because sometimes when you have governors, they get very involved in the state party and oh, obviously the, the governor picks the state party chair and you should monitor that very closely and, and let your voice be heard. And, and there's probably some, you know, shallow organization there in Washington County and, you know, get some of your friends and go to work and try to activate it and get it going. Now, I, I'm a big believer. There's a lot that people can do, you know, right in their own community and their own neighborhoods to bring about a difference here. And you know, sometimes you you don't get the satisfaction if you're in a red county of winning, but boy, you do get a lot of satisfaction of doing better. And that you know, and you you can do that with a you know with some investment of a little money and, t- and time in these local f- committees. Yep, and uh, you're right about
1: Westmore. I I actually met Westmore 21 years ago at his college commencement. Uh, He was impressive then. He's even more impressive now. And I would think that he would really want to energize that uh, that Democratic Party in Maryland. Listen, those questions are terrific. Keep them coming. Uh, There will be lots to talk about uh, post um, the analysis of this last election and what's ahead. So uh, please send them in and tell us where you're from. Hey, now, for the outrage games, there's so many it's hard to pick, and and, and I want to ye- go back to one I couldn't get to last week, and that's Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. He was supposedly remember the respectable Trump, that's an oxymoron, but he showed his true colors by making a wisecrack after Speaker Pelosi's husband Paul was brutally beaten and was in surgery in surgery. Remember that, you Youngkin fans. A new one, however, Donald Trump Jr. A chip off the old vile block charged that Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman recovering from a stroke didn't have a working brain. A lie, of course. The Trump's delight in mocking people with disabilities. Remember Trump Sr. imitated and made fun of a New York Times reporter with physical disabilities. Donnie Jr. said a senator had to have a working
2: cognitive function. Donnie shouldn't run for the Senate. Well, I, I guess my outrage, I, I, I can't think of his name, but that quack MD that's on Fox who said that Fetterman wouldn't wouldn't survive his term. I, it, there's supposedly this thing, and you're not know, supposed to offer an opinion unless you examine a patient or anything else. I don't, I don't think this man has ever seen Fetterman's medical records or anything else. But then he was the same guy that told us not to worry about COVID. So in, in the Hall of Fame of medical idiocy, he, he stands alone. You know, I'll tell you something. If you really wanted to know what a lowlife
1: Dr. Oz is, it was the way he treated us. As a doctor, he could have shown empathy for John Fetterman. And you know what? It would have helped him politically. You know, instead, uh, he became the lowlife that he has been ever since he started selling quack uh, cures uh, on television. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Henson Shaving, Blinkist, and Miracle Brand in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.